Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Big stories. Big guests. The big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. When it comes to military procurement, uh, it, it tends to be a, a rather sad tale in this country. Governments, plural, have done a lousy job when it comes to procurement, and especially on some, some big items. I mean, probably a lot of you remember the, the saga with the helicopters, acquiring new helicopters. And when it comes to fighter jets, that's been a mess as well. And in fact, this, this goes back literally decades. And then we knew 20 years ago that we needed new fighter jets, even sooner. So we uh, refitted our old fighter jets to keep them going so we could figure out our plan. It appeared as though uh, we were getting closer to a decision, a decision to buy F-35 jets. But once the government changed in 2015... We were kind of back at square one. The government said we were going to start the process over and that we were not going to buy the F-35 fighter jets. Well, here we are six years later. Looks as though we probably will. So it's been frustrating. But there was that question, why do we need fighter jets? Why does a country like Canada need new fighter jets? Well, this is a big part of defending our sovereignty. And especially when it comes to the Arctic. Our next guest had a really interesting piece on all of this uh, this week in the Globe and Mail. Uh, Robert Hubert, associate professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Calgary, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Rob, thanks so much for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. You know, it's always my pleasure to come back, Rob. Um, are, are we yet at the point where we can safely say, yes, Canada is going to purchase F-35s? We seem to be getting closer to that. No, uh, and I don't even know how you can say we're getting closer. Um, when you look at uh, what is required to make such a decision, when you look at the, our involvement right from the beginning of the project, um, when we look at how quickly countries like Finland, Denmark, the Netherlands can make this decision, and we just seem to be totally uh, oblivious to it. No, I, I don't think we're any closer. And that, that's, you know, to, to go to your introduction, that's the scary thing about this whole yeah. process. Well, I, I guess the only thing that makes it seem that way is that we've eliminated the Super Hornet, which seemed the only logical alternative to the F-35, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're closer, in your view? No, no, it doesn't. And I mean, the F, you know, the, 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 the elimination, to a very large degree, the suspicion, of course, has nothing to do even in, in any type of, of battlefront capability. I mean, it seems mm-hmm. that, you know, the fact that Boeing had the audacity to take on and hurt a Quebec or Ontario business seemed to be the biggest thing that took them out of the competition. You know, all things standing, that is an older generation aircraft that we're talking. So what, what, what has changed over the last six years? Have we just been kind of metaphorically spinning our wheels here? No, totally. I mean, remember when the Liberal government was, was, was elected, it came up with what was a, a well-thought-out security policy, security defense policy, strong, secure, engaged. It, it mapped things out. 
in a very reasonable fashion, um, said that we are facing a new geopolitical threat. We do need to look at aircraft. We do need to look at upgrades. This is the plan. This is how we're proceeding. But, you know, as so many things, military, the plan sounds sound until we actually try to implement it. And it's just sort of like, okay, well, we said we're going to do it, and that's good enough. And that seems to be the uh, the, the policy on so many um, key uh, procurement projects that this government absolutely needs to be getting um, getting online and said that it was going to in the first security policy. They said it might take them more than two terms to do it. Here we are in the third term, and you might argue that the second term was trunc- uh, truncated, but we're nowhere closer. And I mean, if a country like Finland can make the decision as quickly as it did, and we're still not even at that stage, I mean, that's the part that I think most of us watch with despair. Well, it's bizarre. And, and I mean, there's there's politics, certainly. And I know there's there's certainly a segment of, of the liberal base that feels betrayed, that maybe we're, we're circling back to the F-35. They don't feel we should be uh, shelling up billions of dollars for these planes. And, you know, there, there there is that segment to the population, not just the liberal base, that, you know, wonders why we need new fighter jets. Well, I mean, two things, of course, to the response. I mean, once again, if, if there are segments of the base that are saying, you know, we can't afford it, you got to go read the homework that both Denmark and uh, in Finland did. They did extensive competitive uh, studies. I mean, remember, Finland's right next door to Sweden, and there's all sorts of political reasons for why, you know, they, you would think that they go for the Saab fighter just, just in that context, and beside being non-NATO members as well. Yeah. If you read their actual reports, if, if the numbers are to believe, uh, they came to the conclusion that the F-35 is actually the cheapest option out of the uh, uh, the Super Hornet, the the Viper, and, and um, I think they also looked at the French uh, uh, fighter aircraft. So the argument that it's, it's more expensive, I mean, what does it hold up to what other countries are determining? Now, of course, we have to do our own calculations, no question. The other factor is, and, and this is a part that's so, so frightening, is that there is a segment who says, look, there is no security threat. Why do we need this? And you watch what's happening in Taiwan. You watch what's happening in Hong Kong. You watch what's happening in the Ukraine. And anybody that needs sort of a lesson that we are back into a very dangerous geopolitical environment where, unfortunately, the capability of being able to defend yourself in a high-level battlefield is there. And, I mean, that alone should alert people to it. But there's a whole bunch of stuff happening in the Arctic, as as I pointed out in that op-ed. That really should frighten people in terms of why it's necessary that we actually have a modern, what you know, you could characterize as a shield and sword. The F-35 is a sword, the shield is, is a NORAD modernization, and we haven't done either. Well, yeah, what, what, is, what does this message send? I mean, obviously there's adversaries like Russia we can talk about, but allies like the United States and how heavily we lean on them. Do we really want to lean on them to to protect our Arctic sovereignty, though? Well, this is where a real Arctic sovereignty crisis could brew. The United States from the Second World War has always told us, yes, we will defend you. We will make you will do the heavy lifting, but we can't ever feel that you are letting us become vulnerable. And this was the first meetings between FDR and um, and uh, Mackenzie King. And so that has always been the critical defense policy for Canada. You know, we can do peacekeeping. We can we can do a whole bunch of other things sort of on the side. But the critical point is make sure the Americans never feel vulnerable in North America. And mm-hmm. up until this point all governments liberal and um, and conservative have understood that and so 
the real danger is at what point do the Americans look at what the Norwegians, Finns, Danes, Brits, um, even the Netherlands are doing to protect the northern flank, and if we're not doing it and they feel they have to do it, then that puts at risk the special relationship that has always been founded on the aspect that we are a shared people in many aspects, but we do not let, uh, we do not let adversaries use the North as a, as a, as a weak point um, to, to engage the Americans. And if they start thinking that they have to do it for everything for themselves, that's when I think you're going to see a whole lot of spillover in other relations. What about the message it sends to the Russians, though? Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. we're looking at what the Russians are doing. We're seeing quite clearly that the Russia of today is not the Russia of the uh, immediate post-Cold War period under Yeltsin and so forth. And if the Russians are looking across, they're seeing the, the, the Norwegians working much closer with the Americans. They're letting America uh, station nuclear subs. They're bombers. You see the Danes in engagement with the Greenlanders about expanding the air capabilities at the Thule base. You see Finland now engaging fully with the Americans and the Swedish also doing it. You see Iceland that was after 2006 when the Americans pulled out, begging for the Americans to come back, and they have. So... If you're a Russian and you're looking and you're looking in terms of where your major forces are, which are the north, and you're looking for the weak spots, well, what country have I not listed there in terms of actually taking serious the modernization of its military capabilities? And it's Canada. So in a, in a crisis environment, when you're trying to bring pressure to your adversary, this is sort of tactics 101. Who, who, who are you going to take the message to? And, of course, this is where Canada puts itself at risk. So we're a weakened version in the Russian eye. So if a crisis goes bad, where do you go? Well, you go for the weak point. If you're on the other side of the coin, if you're the Americans and you're looking, okay, where do we shore up our defensive capabilities against any any Russian um, counter moves against us? Well, you know, who's not doing pulling their weight? Well, at this point, Canada. And so you see the twin dilemma mm-hmm. that the lack of acting on this has created for us. Right. So it's not just a matter of opening the checkbook and, and making necessary purchases. It's, it's also our overall commitment to all of this. Well, we have to change our mindset. Yeah. I mean, there is still this mindset that we don't have uh, external threats, that somehow, you know, the military is there to respond for, for, uh, uh, for uh, fires caused by climate change, which it is to be there. It's there to respond to uh, bad weather like we're having now. It's there to respond when, when governments totally mishandle care home uh, and, and pandemics, as, as they did. And the, I think the perception has developed that's what our military is there for without realizing that we have reverted back into a geopolitical environment where we're probably going to see very significant state versus state wars developing. You know, China versus Taiwan, Ukraine versus Russia, which inevitably will involve the West. And and I think in Canada, we're trying to put our, you know, just head, put our, our, our heads in the, I'd say sand, but, you know, I'm in Winnipeg, and so I'd have to say snow instead. <laughs> um, stick your head in the, in the snow and, and, and somehow hope this all misses us which, of course, is just inviting, as I said earlier, it's inviting both very serious rep- repercussions from both what the Russians will do and what the Americans will do. Well, and at this point, I mean, even best case scenario, if the government finally got its act together and said, look, we, we need these fighter jets, we're, we're purchasing F-35s. I mean, what's, what's the soonest we could have those in, in operation? 
Well, if we look at how quickly the Danes got it, I mean, uh, Lougheed's got their, their, their production lines up and running. You know, it's a question of getting your, your pilots trained, getting getting your systems adjusted to it. It's, it's how quickly, you know, I, uh, Lougheed could probably get the plane to us relatively quickly. It's how quickly we can then integrate them into our systems. And that, that really then becomes the big question. And, and just deciding, you know, what are the specificalities that we need for our aircraft. But as I said, I think a lot of the hard lifting, you know, if you want to talk about operating in northern climates, distances, all the the arguments that have been made in terms of, well, you know, can we do that? Finland and Norway, and Norway is actually operating their F-35. So, you know, these are two allies that are, well, Finland's not an ally yet, but I bet you they're going to be pretty soon, uh, is my suspicion after what's happening in the Ukraine, um, that uh, we can turn to both countries and say, okay, well, you know, tell us tell us how you did it. And, I mean, Lougheed, of course, would be more than happy to explore that as well. So that part of it isn't the problem. The problem is the political decisions, how quickly we're going to take it and get it into our uh, operator system. And that, that that's, a, that's a harder one to know, just how much has to be done. I mean, you know, look at how quickly we've not been able to integrate the uh, the leftover Australian aircraft that uh, we bought off the Australians when the Australians made the decision to go through the F-35s. All right. Well, something's got to change. I guess we'll find out in the New York. If indeed, it is going to. Dr. Hubert, appreciate uh, your perspective on all of this. Thanks for joining us here today. Always my pleasure, Rob. All the best. Uh, that's uh, Dr. Rob Hubert, uh, University of Calgary, uh, an expert on uh, issues related to uh, Northern sovereignty. You can read his piece this week in the Globe and Mail, theglobeandmail.com, on why we need F-35s to, you know, carry our weight, do our part, defend our own sovereignty. But I want to get into the issue at the top in the sour here of abuse in sports. And obviously, look, there have been some high-profile examples of that recently, you know, in the world of gymnastics, in the world of hockey, and a lot of it having to do with, with sexual abuse. But abuse can come in many forms. And are we doing enough to support victims and to hold people accountable? Uh, there was a really troubling report earlier this week in the Globe and Mail following a lengthy investigation. And this involved Canada's national synchronized swimming team. This investigation found that coaches used highly suspect science to push athletes to lose unhealthy amounts of weight, often through dangerous methods. Many suffered eating disorders, say they've been left with significant physical and mental health problems. So why is this still happening in in this day and age? Where, Where is the protection for these athletes, support for victims, and accountability for those that would abuse them, take advantage of them, or put them in dangerous situations. Uh, one national sports funding organization says, you know, enough is enough, and, and things need to change. We need tougher action to prevent the abuse of athletes, you know, to ensure that, that uh, young people are devoting their lives to sports are looked after. Uh, Dominic Gochi is co-founder of the group B210, uh, much more at uh, their website, which is B2, the number 2, T-E-N.com. Dominic, uh, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, as you, uh, you know, took in that uh, Globe and Mail report and the investigation they did and everything that came to light about the national synchronized uh, swimming team and what was going on there, what went through your mind? 
Well, I was so happy they did because uh, we started this. Um, I mean, this whole story for us at B210 and Artistic Swimming, they call it now, uh, started in 2011, you know, and that's when we've noticed like some really, really bad behaviors from the coaching staff to the athletes. And we just tried to do things to change it then, and that would take an hour to go around everything we've done. But mm-hmm. we basically left discouraged, discouraged that this was a cultural problem that would probably, I wouldn't say never change, but would take a long time to change. And the people in place at that time were not willing to do what needed to be done, and we walked away. And now we've been back at it about two years ago. And then again, we were left with a bit of discouragement seeing that the people in place, the leader in the sports world, and even at our government, were not willing to really do what needed to be done. Um, And now that this article is coming up from the Globe and Mail, I'm like feeling some sense of hope again, because it's making a lot of noise and, and we're talking today about it, you know? Yeah, that's the silver lining here that, you know, these, you know, these revelations prompt this conversation and hopefully lead to change. But what is it that needs to change? Well, that's the thing is we've, we've, well, we know now all the kind of abuse that can happen in sport, as you mentioned in the introduction. I mean, the elements are there for all of that to happen because you have like very vulnerable athletes, often pretty young, who have a big dream to go to the Olympics. And, and, and I was one of them. I was an Olympic athlete, and I was willing to do anything almost. Maybe not cheating, but I would have done anything a coach would tell me to do to a certain degree. And then if you have a coach that's poorly intentionate, that's abusive, well, all the elements are there for that abuse to occur. So it's a very tricky place where we need to intervene, in, intervene sorry, and give those, you know, way out for athletes who face potentially that kind of abuse to be able to report it in a very independent way. The problem that we've had over the years lately is that each national sport organization is, was somewhat responsible for managing the complaints, um, to manage their coaching staff when things would come up. And you can't ask a sport to police itself. We've seen it in alpine skiing. We've seen it, you mentioned, in gymnastics. We've seen it in artistic swimming. We can't. And you know what? Athletes want won't speak up because they don't want to jeopardize their Olympic dream. So they, they, they will just suffer in silence. And now I think there are some decent solutions out there, you know, and that's, that's the thing that I'm asking in that article is that let's stop doing consultation and trying to educate people in awareness and this and that and have committees of this and committees of that when the solution is out there. It might not be perfect, but let's take 80% right now. Let's run with it. And the government, who is the main funder of sport in this country, is the one that needs to impose those regulations. And if the NSOs, which are the national sports organization, don't comply, well, you, you, you lose your funding. And that's, that's how it's got to be because we just can't keep talking about it. <laughs> like, yeah. it's time to act or else, like, we're, we're losing people's, well, we're, we're, we're affecting and destroying, I should say, not even the sports career, because at that point, who cares? But we're destroying people's lives, and that's that's what freaks me out. Well, that's part of the you know the story that's so troubling, right? Are the the longer term implications of, of what this does to young athletes, and and you know right. the physical suffering, obviously the emotional, the mental suffering that comes with that, and you know, and, and you know, I mean, obviously, look, athletes push themselves to the limits, and you know, in sports, you know, there are physical risks, and injuries can occur, and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, when we're talking about protecting the health of athletes and, and drawing a line when it comes to things that put athletes at risk do we know where that line is 
Yeah, well, we know if we actually do listen to science, and mm-hmm. that's the problem here in the story we're talking about, it's that the athletes, or the athletes were faced with a coach that, you know, was a, on the very artistic side, let's put it that way. But she would claim that our, all her decision was backed by science, which was completely false, because she has a team of physiologists that works with her, she has a team of strength and conditioning specialists, and that's how we got involved at B210. It was trying to bring that science aspect to it. But the problem is, at the end of the day, the coach is the one on the side of the pool in this case, and the coach will decide what they do with that information. If, it, if, it's, if it's a culture where the coach is king or queen, right? Um, but luckily, I think there are many sports now that have understood the problems of leaving too much in the hands of coaches. Yeah. And therefore, in these cases, you have like the experts, the real scientists, who are the ones calling the shots. And I think that's the situation here that needs to change in artistic swimming is that you can't have a coach making the last call because they, they don't know anything about how much weight should the athlete be to be Olympic gold medalist in a sport like artistic swimming or gymnastics. There is a body weight and a body composition that obviously we're talking artistic swimming. We don't expect anybody to be overweight. No one is asking not to train hard, Mm -hmm. but asking a woman that is, you know, her her lean body composition would be about 140, let's say, or 135, because they're pretty tall women in artistic swimming. Uh, And you ask her to not be like 120, but that she should be 110. And once she's at 110, pretty much starving to death, you have the whole program and the whole team clapping her hands to applaud her because she got the body weight of 110. And that's what was happening. When in fact at 110, that athlete is losing her bone density. She risks, you know, serious injuries and let alone all the mental illness that comes with that. And as they relate in the article, many, many of them have faced, you know, eating disorder and stuff like that that will follow you for the rest of your life. So, so even if they thought about performance and use the science, these athletes would not be forced to starve that way because that's not the way you get the performance out of these athletes. So it's kind of interesting because they're claiming they're doing this to beat the Russians and to beat the Chinese, but at the end of the day, they're shooting themselves in the foot, and that's what we're trying to tell them. Yeah. Now, you know, if we have the education that's being done by outside people that could intervene and, um, you know, giving a, giving a voice to these athletes, and now luckily the media are talking about it quite a bit, and uh, the problem is when they spoke up, Again, the latest group of athletes, there were five that, you know, pressed charge against a coach that was very abusive. And, you know, you, you got to understand, like, people listening to us, that we're not talking about, you know, athletes maybe whining because they don't want to work too hard. No, no, we're talking about athletes who are laughed at. You know, they show up at the, at the pool and they're like, oh, how are you, my little beluga this morning? How's my big whale today? And in front of everybody, like, claiming things like that when I can pretty much see the daylight through these girls' body. <laughs> And that's what is not, you know, that's not what was happening. It's what is still happening today. The guy coaching the national team right now is abusive. Yet, the organization are leaving him there on the side of the pool, and he pretends that he's changed and that he's a better person now. No, he's not, because I hear it. It's still Mm -hmm. happening. And again, to me, that goes back to the fact that we need to have a government that will step in because we can't rely on the national sport organization to do it itself. They had a chance many times and they have always failed. And at the end of the day, we're losing athletes and we're affecting their lives.
So what we have coming into effect next year, something called the Sport Dispute Resolution Center of Canada. And this is going to be kind of a a third-party complaints investigator. But it's not mandatory for sports organizations. Exactly the problem, because the solution that I'm referring to that, you know, let's say it's, I mean, to me, it's 90% perfect, to be honest. But let's say it's 70, okay? Because some people will say, well, we could do better than the SDRCC and, and so on. But let's say it's, you know, 75%, it should be mandatory. That's exactly my point here. Um, we have a good solution that's independent. Let's use it. And especially sports like artistic swimming and gymnastics and many other I couldn't name, but let's use those two because we have, uh, you know, a lot of examples of, of poor behaviors within those sports right now as we speak. Don't let them tell you that they will govern them themselves better than what this program could do for them. And that's where I find our government very weak. They're very weak. We have evidence. Like, it's not like we heard there might be some smoke, maybe some fire. No, no, no. This has been proven. And you will let them govern themselves? That's where you're failing. No way. There's a solution. Let's apply it. They need to comply or they lose their funding, period, in my view. Yeah, I think we're at that point. Absolutely. Uh, Dominic, we'll leave it there. As mentioned, much more at uh, B210.com. Thank you so much for your insight on all of this. Appreciate you joining us here today. Well, thank you for talking about it. Really appreciate it. All the best. Uh, That's uh, Dominic Gauthier, co-founder of uh, B210, B210 B210.com. Uh, former uh, Olympic skier himself. So he's, he's seen it from that side as in the athlete side. And uh, so brings an interesting perspective. And obviously they're doing a lot of important work through their organization. But as he said, I mean, you know, the solution seems kind of obvious. Wanted to turn our attention right now to an interesting approach to dealing with urban coyotes or coyotes. Maybe we'll clarify that. Uh, but obviously, look, we don't want uh, coyotes feeling comfortable in urban areas, comfortable around people. So what's the best way of dealing with that? Well, the Edmonton Urban Coyote Project has a, a very interesting way of dealing with urban coyotes. And they're looking for some new recruits. This is a project that involves basically harassing, kind of almost bullying uh, the coyotes as a way of making them more fearful of humans and staying away from residential areas. So, how's your pitching arm? Joining us to talk more about it is uh, Colleen St. Clair, uh, PhD professor in the Faculty of Science, uh, University of Alberta, Biological Sciences, and involved in the Edmonton Urban Coyote Project. Uh, professor St. Clair, thanks for joining us here. Well, hello, Rob. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, by the way, I mean, do we say coyotes or coyotes? How do you say it? <laughs> well, I grew up on the prairie, so I say coyote, okay. and uh, <laughs> I understand they're both right, though. Oh, good. It's an All ancient right. uh, Aztec word, I think. I see. I mean, sort of like tarantula. Okay. All right. There we go. Okay. Good to know. All right. Well, let's talk about the problem of urban coyotes then. And, and you know, obviously it's a problem in Edmonton, Calgary, other cities as well. Is it a problem that's been getting worse in recent years? Well, it does seem that there are more reports of urban coyotes in in residential areas and more reports of them acting quite aggressively towards people, approaching them closely, more reports of pets being attacked by coyotes. And uh, this last year, we saw a really unprecedented situation in Calgary with uh, eight people being bitten by coyotes and even worse in Vancouver. So, yes, it does seem like it's a, a worsening problem. 
Now, there are different ways of dealing with the problem, obviously, and the last resort is, is to have to find these animals and, and put them down. Uh, relocating them you know, can be a problem, especially if they're just going to end up coming back to the same area. So what's the approach then that the Edmonton Urban Coyote Project is taking? Well, we're imitating an approach that's been used for many years in the national parks to uh, teach more wariness to bears and keep them away from human use areas. It's known as hazing or aversive conditioning, and and it just um, subjects the animals to something they naturally find unpleasant by, by scaring them, or in some cases in the parks they use chalk balls. Um, that approach has been used in Calgary as well to convince the animals that, that people are not very trustworthy, that they sometimes um, cause them to be fearful, cause the coyotes to feel fearful or even to to cause some small amount of pain. And over time, the expectation is that we'll teach the animals to mistrust all people and just, just give them a wide berth. And if they do that, we think conflict will decline. So the volunteers involved then in, in the project, uh, they you mentioned the tennis ball, so that's part of it. I think a lot of it is about making noises, but yeah, part of it does involve basically throwing these, these balls at the animals. Yeah, we use tennis balls that are weighted with sand and have flagging tape tied to them. So it's kind of a, a visual stimulus, and when the tennis ball hits the ground near the coyote, it's a little bit of a frightening stimulus. It's not as aversive as chalk balls would be, but uh, the police services uh, probably rightly have said there is no way you are going to have citizens firing any kind of projectile at animals. <laughs> Illegal, can't do it. So um, they've allowed us, though, to throw these weighted tennis balls that most people can throw pretty accurately with a little bit of practice. And our hope is that will be enough of a stimulus to make coyotes a bit fearful. And we want it to be something that's intense enough that it doesn't cause them to just habituate to people to get more and more used to very slight harassment, which might be what happens if if we restrict the hazing to just, say, yelling at the coyotes. They'll learn fairly quickly that that is totally harmless. Is there any risk in this? I mean, you know, if, if the animals feel like they're under attack, do they, do they get defensive? What, what are the, the potential red flags in those kinds of interactions? Some risk, I think, Rob. Um, if this were being done in uh, natural areas, river valleys and ravine parks, for example, during denning season, close to where coyotes are denning, that kind of defensive behavior might be expected. Right. But those are not the places where we do this. We do it only in residential areas during the day and only when coyotes allow people to approach within 40 me- meters. So um, in that way, we're selecting coyotes that are already in, in human dominated areas and they should feel a little nervous there already and we're trying to make them feel a little more nervous reducing the likelihood that coyotes will be hanging around in schoolyards letting themselves be seen by people and increasing the sense of security that people have in their neighborhoods because uh, lots of people find it very unsettling to see coyotes uh, you know walking down the street in the middle of the day well and so is it that the animals already feel a little uncomfortable they're they're not in you know what what would seem like maybe their their more natural conditions are they already a, a little on edge when they're in residential areas I think they are, and that's kind of the assumption we're we're going with, that we're at a pivot point for urban coyotes. They are definitely becoming bolder around people, and there's increasing um, 
reports of conflict involving pets or even approaches to people, they're still rare relative to the number of coyote sightings that occur. But we want to keep them that way. So with this uh, juncture we're at now where coyotes are are increasingly common in urban areas, I think we have a bit of an opportunity to, to keep them quite wary, um, which is the case for, say, urban foxes in, in Europe. They're quite wary, very nocturnal. And so it's possible to coexist with these canids, but uh, we'll just have to do it in a careful way. So this hazing approach, you know, the... the work you've done with it already, what you've seen in other communities dealing with urban coyotes, what kind of success does this seem to result in? Well, our sample size is small, but I have three times chased coyotes, um, (laughs) throwing tennis balls at them um, in my own neighborhood in uh, sort of central Edmonton. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can vouch for the fact that they run away and they, they seem to well, this is a bit anthropocentric, I suppose, but um, they seem to find us, uh, you know, kind of crazy when we do that, chase them. <laughs> and uh, in our program last year, uh, there were only five instances where the conditions were right for people to treat coyotes, but in all cases, they ran away. And often, just when we stopped to measure their the distance away, that was part of our protocol, that was enough. Just looking at the coyotes in a in a directed way was enough to make them leave over 80% of the time. So it doesn't take much intimidation. So are, are you looking for volunteers still? We are. Thank you for asking. Yes, yes the project uh, currently is based in Edmonton, but uh, other cities seem to be interested in what we're doing, and uh, a similar program will begin in Vancouver next year. Calgary already has an aversive conditioning program being uh, implemented by wildlife professionals, and uh, I think this will become a pretty mainstream technique, hopefully involving some combination of professionals and citizens. All right, so where can people find out more then? They can go to our website, edmontonurbancoyotes.ca, or they can send an email to coyotes at ualberta.ca. All right, fantastic. Colleen, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this. Oh, thank you, Rob. I appreciate it in turn. All the best. Uh, That is uh, Colleen St. Clair at the uh, University of Alberta, Faculty of Biological Sciences, uh, biologist overseeing this project. So you can go to Edmonton Urban Coyotes, Coyotes, However you prefer to say it, it's spelled the same. Uh, EdmontonUrbanCoyotes.ca to find out more about this project and to volunteer. So it's an Edmonton-based project right now, but you know it's something that, that could expand elsewhere because this has certainly been an issue in, in Calgary as well. So EdmontonUrbanCoyotes.ca, an interesting approach. Uh, making a lot of noise, throwing some uh, tennis balls with sand in them, giving them a little extra weight just to make them feel unwelcome. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.